Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, and here in the United States, it is the week of one of our weirdest national holidays, Thanksgiving, the celebration of eating. Well, yes, eating and and family and sort of imperfect recollections of U.S. history, uh, as well as, of course, Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's that's what I associate it with, uh, oh, the Turkey course. Day Marathon. No, I think Thanksgiving is a weird holiday, especially for listeners outside the United States who probably have heard of it, but, you know, you don't have it in your own country. Uh, well, if you have it in Canada, you have it in, at a different time of the year, too. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know hey, that. The thanks, yeah, Canadian Thanksgiving is uh, slightly different than America. My ignorance has no bounds. <laughs> but no, Thanksgiving is weird because I, I don't know if you see it this way. Most holidays involve feasting as a feature of the holiday. But Thanksgiving is the only holiday that is about feasting. It seems like that is the the content of the holiday. Yeah, or at least the the feasting aspect of it has become so bloated that it eclipses everything else. Right. Yeah, and and then likewise we become so bloated uh, that we eclipse everything else as well. It's a tradition. And in the spirit of continuing traditions, we're actually continuing a stuff to blow your mind tradition here today with the third episode in our dangerous food series, which is a sort of cheeky look at foods that can actually have some negative consequences if consumed under certain circumstances or uh, not consumed in the right way, not prepared in the right way but also with an eye toward o- avoiding food panic. Right. Yeah, like one of the important things to stress here is that if you eat just about any food the wrong way, uh, th- some bad stuff can happen. Yeah, eating <laughs> is sort of like a really incredibly complicated chemistry experiment that mm-hmm. you do with your own life and your own health as the like as the potential outcomes of the experiment. Certainly, when you eat another organism, you're going to encounter its unique biochemistry. So, with uh, with an animal, that might be its uh, you know venomous glands or uh, or you know yucky viscera or whatever it was eating. Correct. Yeah, pollution that it's uh, that is uh, entered into its system. Uh, but also just about any spice and so many different. Uh, uh, plants that we consume. Uh, you also have to take into account what sort of uh, chemical weapons do they have as part of their biology that we will be taking into ours. I don't know. Maybe you eat organisms. I I, I advocate <laughs> an entirely synthetic diet composed entirely of molecules fabricated in a lab. Or what's the uh, what, what's the, the the soylent stuff? Right? Is that made from organisms, or is that just a complete? Uh, a complete fabrication. You know, I, I'd actually have to assume that almost anything you could eat is in some way derived from an oh, organism. Yes. Even if it was never a living plant or animal, it's a thing made from some kind of plant or animal source. Yeah, we're not quite yet uh, at that Star Trek uh, level of just push a few buttons on a machine and it'll spit out an artificial uh, simulacrum uh, of, of what you want to eat. Right. This hamburger was not made from rocks. Right. It might have been made from plants, but mm-hmm. not from rocks. But still, I see people in the office drinking so- uh, Soylent and it makes me think that we might be there, that this might just be um, you know, a complete fabrication that's brought here on a spaceship, I guess. Obviously, the answer is that we should do a 10-part series on Soylent. <laughs> Probably. That's what the people want. <laughs> so, uh, I'm we... just kidding, folks. Please don't run away. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, unless you're Soylent and you want to advertise on our show, then I guess yes. Um, <laughs> we'll see. But hey. <laughs> well, we're going to make a lot of enemies <laughs> in uh, in big, uh, big food and agribusiness today. So maybe once... We forever closed the door on getting a sponsorship from Jolly Ranchers or whatever. <laughs> uh, we, we can open ourselves up to the to the evil Soylent dollars. That's right. So as usual in this series, our goal here is not to say ooh at uh, unusual foods or to cast uh, xenophobic scorn on other culinary customs. Rather, these traditions uh, are fascinating. Uh, and uh, the risks associating with, associated with certain dishes, I think they force us to reexamine the foods that we eat on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, they force you to, to think about it in the terms I brought up earlier, the fact that your diet, all mm-hmm. the food and drink you consume is this 
ongoing chemistry experiment with your body's health on the line. Right. And most of the time we really – I mean we're, we're playing kind of fast and loose with this experiment. I mean we we experiment on things because they taste good or because they make you feel a certain way, not so much because we've usually done deep research in exactly what the chemical effects of them are once they enter our metabolism. Right. That's uh, that's something we find out, uh, you know, decades down the line in some cases. Right. And you read about in the British Medical Journal. Exactly. We'll take a few forays into that journal today. But first, for our, for our first course in this multi-course feast of potentially dangerous foods, I think we should have dessert. Well, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's start with dessert. Everything is kind of super rich at Thanksgiving dinner anyway. So I've always thought it doesn't matter what order you're taking it in, right? Right. I mean, the sweet potato casserole is as sweet as the dessert, and it's served with the turkey. So, you know, what's the difference? Are you a sweet potato casserole guy? It's a. When I was a kid, yes. Now I find it a bit too sweet. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't do it. I can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll check you on another sweet food here: black licorice. Thumbs oh. up, thumbs down. You got thoughts? The black licorice, the candy, like the black Twizzler. Yeah, the wax of Belial. <laughs> Is that what they call it? The, is in the demon Belial? I think somebody calls it oh, that. Oh wow! Yeah. Nice in the in the wizard's compendium. Hmm. I I never had an appreciation for candy licorice, black licorice, as a as a child. I always preferred the ultimately kind of equally grotesque uh, Twizzler candy, the the red Twizzler. You know? Oh yeah, it's just straight up sh- sugary. Yeah, it doesn't have the kind of uh, herbal bouquet of licorice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the wax of Belial is, I think, widely considered a disgusting abomination. <laughs> I can't – so I, I'm weird because it's often put in this family with other very similar flavors like anise and fennel and things mm-hmm. like that. But I like those flavors and I don't like black licorice and I'm not sure exactly what the difference is. Obviously, they've got some kind of uh, flavor and aroma overlap but there's something about the black licorice candy that just repels me in a way that these other flavors don't. Well, I mean, on one hand, you can say, like, the candy version of anything runs the risk of being grotesque, at least, you know, to uh, adult palates. Mm-hmm. Or, or certainly, I mean, the other th- thing you have to keep in mind, too, is, like, when – at what point in human history are you eating licorice? Are you eating licorice when it's one of the, the few choices for sweet candy? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you, are you eat, or are you eating it in the age of Snickers and uh, Jolly Ranchers and what have you, where you have kind of like the the crack cocaine of sugar available, and you don't have to turn to some of these more traditional uh, uh, ways of getting your fix. I hadn't thought about it like that, but of course, another aspect of licorice we'll discuss in a minute is that it's not just consumed for the taste. People have long thought that it had mm-hmm. some kind of uh, medicinal, nutritional, or therapeutic value. I think that's debatable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we can get to that in a minute. So I, I mentioned it's widely abhorred, but it's also widely beloved. There are people who really, really love black licorice. So uh, to, to get us into thinking about the possible effects of black licorice on the body, I want to start with a gem from one of my favorite genres of old news articles to dig up, which is the Vault of Strange Food Recalls. Okay. So in 2012, Red Vines, you know, that candy company, they make... Oh, yes. Yeah, they're kind of the... Um... Like the the, the B movie of uh, of Twizzlers, I've, uh, that's my opinion of them anyway. It's funny you mention movies because I think of them exclusively as a candy people buy in movie theaters. Oh yeah, that's where I I would always encounter because used to eating red Twizzlers at the movie that was my thing. Like that yeah. was uh, that was the food that I would uh, food quote unquote that I would get. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> they wouldn't have Twizzlers and you were forced to have red vines. And, yeah, in my experience, if you go in expecting Twizzlers and you get red vines, it's just not going to be a satisfying experience. So you sit down to see Highlander 2, The Quickening, on opening night. Right. You've got your red vines and you're (laughs) a little bit disappointed. Yeah, because it's just not quite what you wanted. Yeah. Well, so in 2012, that company, they issued a recall of black licorice, quote, twists. I guess those those are the twisty uh, little uh, cords, the whips, Mm -hmm. Uh, because the California Department of Public Health tested some bags and found they contained elevated levels of drumroll lead. Oh, that's not supposed to be there. No, probably not. So guidelines at the time stated that children and pregnant women should not be exposed to more than six micrograms of lead a day. And in the bags they tested, a single serving could contain more than 13 micrograms of lead. Uh, and who eats just a single serving of anything? If you're at the movie theater, you bought that bag, you're going to eat that whole bag. Yeah. 
and if so, if you're just hanging out pounding bag after bag of licorice twists, that lead can really add up. Now, fortunately, I think this seemed to be like an incidental contaminant in some bags of candy, not a problem with licorice in principle. But there are more fundamental issues with licorice that might make you want to really think twice about potential licorice binges. We'll introduce you to the plant, and then we'll come back to those uh, things that might give you second thoughts. Yeah, the, the licorice plant uh, itself is rather interesting. And, uh, you know, I want to come back for a second to what we were talking about earlier about the, the flavor of licorice. Mm-hmm. So certainly as a child, I did not care for uh, the licorice flavor. Uh, as I have progressed, hopefully progressed, uh, as an adult, uh, I, I have acquired a, a certain appreciation for licorice flavoring in certain things, if it's mild enough. So th- there, are, there are a number of alcoholic beverages that have a licorice flavor, and it varies. There are some traditional uh, Middle Eastern licorice-flavored drinks, mm-hmm. uh, and I find those usually to be a bit too strong in that flavor for me. Likewise, uh, there's the whole like realm of Jägermeister and whatnot, which, right. is, which is also something I never developed a taste for. But in a well-balanced cocktail, you often have a, a licorice flavor that uh, if it's balanced right, works. Yeah, it has this kind of um, nice, sweet but bitter herbal note. Uh, it, it, I think it's usually considered like an aperitif, like it sort of increases the appetite, uh, maybe stimulates the production of bile, or mm-hmm. at least seems like it would. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and again, if it's, in, if it's if it's balanced properly, I find that it works. So I turn to one of my favorite cocktail books, uh, Amy Stewart's The Drunken Botanist which is uh, essentially a botany book uh, that's all about uh, alcoholic beverages and different spirits and yeah. beer and wine, et cetera. It's killer. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I, I'm always pulling it off the shelf just to look up you know, whatever I happen to be consuming. Uh, but she points out that there are a number of botanical sources that produce just the licorice flavor itself. And these include anise, star anise, anise uh, hysop, fennel, hysop, and sweet sealy. So there are many sources for the flavor itself, uh, many quite unrelated to each other. But what they have in common is uh, is this uh, substance, this actually this molecule, the licorice flavor molecule that's uh, known as anethyl. And it's uh, soluble in alcohol, but not in water. So it, And it separates from the alcohol when water is added, causing a milky or green cloudiness, uh, which you may have noticed if you've ever had a, a certain uh, alcoholic beverages that have a, a licorice spirit in them. Oh, well, you certainly see that in, for example, Absinthe, which we talked about in, uh, in the last episode where we, where we talked about Amy Stewart and the drunken botanist. Yeah, in, our, cocktail in our cocktails episode. episode. Yeah. yeah you, like you see that, uh, when it emulsifies in the water, it creates this cloudy louche. Now, the licorice plant itself, Glyceriza glabra, is a small southern European perennial, and it's actually a type of bean, according to Stewart, that reaches two to three feet in height, and it doesn't form a vine. The pea family. Yeah. And uh, the root is the part that we harvest, uh, and uh, this is what uh, contains uh, the anethyl as well as a natural sweetener. And that natural sweetener is glycerizin or glycerizic acid. Yeah. So one of the funny things is I think that the word licorice itself in English is a sort of way down the flow of the of the language game corruption of glyceriza, right? Licorice, glyceriza. Would it, would it be more appropriate, you think, for the like just sort of the taste sensation if we called it glicorice? You know, <laughs> like licorice sounds like a, just a little too uh, sumptuous. Uh-huh. But if it was a glicorice, then that uh, that 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 more sums up my response to a really hard licorice flavor. Now that's an interesting psychology question. Why are some <laughs> consonant sounds? less appetizing than others. The mm. hard G does not usually make my appetite leap up. Yeah, yeah, or uh, unless it's sufficiently French sounding, I think. But then, yeah. then it then it maybe has a leg up on the situation. Hmm. Yeah, well anyway, so uh, so we're talking about the plant, uh, uh glyceriza, and you said that the the licorice extract comes from the root. That's true. You you take the roots of this plant, uh not the peas, not the beans in the pod, but the roots, and you grind the roots up, you boil them, and you produce this licorice juice which you can then cram into all kinds of recipes. Licorice candy, licorice is widely used in tobacco products. Do you know that? Yeah, I was re- uh Stuart mentions this that it's used to sort of mask the flavor of the the of the, the the cigarette or what have you. Yeah, and this is uh it's funny that they would need to mask the flavor, you know. <laughs> 
flavor country. Yeah. Mask it all. Uh, but then also licorice flavorings are used to mask other flavors. For example, in medicines to cover the taste of the active compounds, which can often be bitter or otherwise unpleasant tasting. Um, and uh, somebody out there, I'm sure, makes like artisanal licorice mayonnaise. There, there are weird licorice products all over <laughs> the place. For example, did you know in in places in northern Europe, like in Finland, salty licorice is a thing. Ooh, hmm. Well, it's hard for me to imagine that, but I'm going to keep an open mind and and say that I it could I could see where that could be good. Yeah. Okay. So where does the licorice danger come in, assuming your licorice has not been contaminated with lead? In 1997, a pair of doctors named James Chamberlain and Igor Abolnik published a case study in the Western Journal of Medicine. And here's what went down in their case. This previously healthy 64-year-old man shows up at a Salt Lake City VA hospital. He reports to them that he's had trouble breathing after exertion, that he's got shortness of breath when lying down, and he's got general fatigue. Now, if you are a medical professional out there and you're listening to that, you might be thinking like, okay, this could be signs of congestive heart failure, right? Mm -hmm. Tests showed that he was suffering from pulmonary edema. This is a condition when fluid collects in your lungs, making it hard to breathe. And usually the reason this happens is congestive heart failure, but... This man had no real signs of having uh, a history of heart problems. And in the days leading up to the hospital visit, the man didn't report any changes to his behavior or diet except one. He'd been on a licorice binge. Uh. Over the past three days, he had eaten by himself a total of four packages of black licorice Hershey Twizzlers. Ooh. This is about uh, 1,020 grams or about 2.24 pounds of black licorice over three days. Well, you know, I – I, I can't relate to the black Twizzlers on this, but uh, I, I can relate as far as red Twizzlers go. Uh, I said that I don't really eat Twizzlers much anymore. Right. But occasionally I will give in to the temptation. So you and, were lying. Well, yeah, I guess I was. Uh, lying to myself, really. Uh, because <laughs> there was a time in the past couple of years where somebody brought a bunch of Twizzlers to a Dungeons & Dragons game. And I kind of forgot that I had a blood test the next day uh, for my uh, doctor's exam. Oh, wow. And I ended up flunk flunking my gluco glucose test because of all the Twizzlers I'd eaten the night before. <laughs> and I had to, like, retake it later on uh, after a, you know, sane um, <laughs> consumption of sugar. Yeah. So I feel him on the Twizzler bench is what I'm saying. Do you think you ate 2.24 pounds? Ah, uh, you know, I, I I really don't want to do the math on that because I'm afraid <laughs> what I might find. Well, anyway, so once they knew that he had eaten all this licorice, the doctors were able to say, oh, okay, we think we can pinpoint the problem. It's the licorice overdose. And so they treated him and they kept him in the hospital for a couple of days and his symptoms disappeared. The pulmonary edema went away. They did a new uh, uh, chest X-ray. You could see his lungs were all cleared up and he was fine. And he came back several months later, checked in, had had no more problems of a similar nature. It appeared to just be the licorice. The authors of this case study report that it's rare for a licorice binge to lead to fluid collecting in the lungs, though they were able to find a few other cases of it in the literature. Only one other case was not uh, associated with comorbid conditions. Uh, but excess consumption of licorice has been linked to negative health effects such as heart arrhythmias and hypertension. So what's going on here? Well... The explanation seems to be that when a lot of black licorice comes into the body, it sort of sets off a chemical chain reaction uh, starting in your metabolism that makes a crucial nutrient leave the body. So natural licorice contains an ingredient, as we mentioned before, called glycyrrhizin or glycyrrhizic acid. And when it gets metabolized, it eventually leads to the renal system, especially the kidneys, purging potassium from the body. And uh, one other side effect is that it tends to lead to increased sodium retention in the body. So your body retains more sodium, mm -hmm. purges potassium. Medically, that's not good. A potassium deficiency in the blood is known as hypokalemia. And hypokalemia is bad news for your muscles, including your heart, because the, the simple version is that your body uses potassium to regulate the electrochemical communication between nerves and muscle cells. Potassium is just very important for electrolyte balance in your body. And if your electrolyte balance is off and you're not getting enough potassium, your cells can't communicate properly. 
So will a little bit of licorice hurt me? You're probably one if you're one of those people who d- does not believe in the wax of Belial but <laughs> believes in the uh you know the black manna from heaven. Uh, will a little bit hurt you? I'd say no, probably not, but you should be careful. You shouldn't overdo it. Uh, United States FDA has said if you consume more than 40 grams of licorice a day for two weeks or more, you can start to get dangerously low levels of potassium. And 40 grams, that, that's not a whole lot. Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly not, you wouldn't want to binge on it, but that, that's, that's, uh, I would say go light on the licorice would be the, the take home from this. Yeah, don't, don't binge on it and probably, you probably shouldn't eat it every day, even if you only eat a little right, bit. Right, there's a whole world of candies out there. You don't have to just go all in on the licorice. But there is some good news. So if you are a licorice fan, not all candies or products labeled licorice actually contain natural licorice extract, the the stuff that poses the risk. Right. We we mentioned all the various other places you can get the licorice flavoring. Yeah. So a lot of things that are labeled licorice are actually just products flavored with something like anise oil Mm -hmm. or, or other things that contain these similar herbal compounds that taste like licorice, but they don't pose the same risk from the uh, glycerizic acid. Uh, so you can research your products on your own, try to find out what goes in them, and make your decisions accordingly. Uh, now, on one hand, we don't like to be alarmist. We don't like to say, you know, oh, th- this food's scary, it's going to hurt you. But some scientists recently have taken a fairly harsh view of whether people should really be consuming natural licorice extract. Uh, one study I found uh, by uh, Hesham R. Omar et al. published in Therapeutic Advances in Endocrinology and Metabolism in 2012 had uh, made, made the following statements, quote, Despite its apparent use in a few clinical scenarios, the daily consumption of licorice is never justified (laughs) because its benefits are minor compared to the adverse outcomes of chronic consumption. And then they also say, quote, increased awareness among the public is required through TV commercials, newspapers, Internet sites, magazines and product labels regarding the upper limit of ingestion and health hazards associated with excess intake. So run out onto the streets. And and just yell at people like it's the like it's the closing moments of invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah. And uh, and say, don't eat the licorice. I mean, if you wanted to start a pernicious rumor to get the job done, you could just suggest that licorice is people. <laughs> now, I, I like what you mentioned earlier about the uh, like anise and star anise uh, being uh, an ingredient in some of the, the flavoring, mm-hmm. because ultimately that sounds classier. Right. I mean, uh, that's that has more of a culinary feel to it. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, if someone were to say, hey, do you want some licorice candy or would you like some star anise oil infused, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, hard candy? I would say, oh, well, give me some of that. Uh, give, give me some, some of the second option because that sounds uh, like a nice craft candy. I totally see what you're saying there. That makes me think that partially my aversion to licorice candy is is like a learned thing or mm-hmm. something like that because – if somebody says, do you want some black licorice? I'm like, get out of my house. Mm-hmm. If somebody's like, would you like some star anise candy? I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, I have just a, a couple more things about licorice to throw in here. So back in 2009, chemist in Taiwan uh, found that an ingredient in licorice blocked the absorption of uh, cyclosporine, a drug that helps prevent organ rejection in transplant patients. Huh. So uh, – this is uh, this this was rather interesting, but uh, I should I should definitely drive home that the the prospect of licorice complicating organ transplants that was a new idea at the time, but it was hardly the only substance that was known to uh, that uh, to complicate transplants. So, a lot of things can mess with that, right? Right, including things like onions, ginger, ginkgo. Uh, that's just to name a few. So it's onions. Not- that's that's uh, that's what I read. So, that's a big hit, man. Yeah, I mean, people. I would love to hear from anyone out there who has received an organ transplant and has had to sort of alter their their diet or lifestyle to uh, accommodate that. But uh, but but yeah, I don't want to make it sound like licorice is the only thing that can unbalance this scenario. On the upside, uh, I also ran across a 2010 study that was published in the the journal uh, Leukocyte Biology, and they reported that licorice root might uh, just ward off a rare and deadly infection that can stem from severe burns. So in this study, scientists from the University of Texas Medical Branch and Shiner's Hospital found that uh, that glycerizin boosted the damaged skin's production of proteins uh, called antimicrobial peptides. So, you know, there's so that's one we there's some points we can put up on the scoreboard for licorice. 
uh, in safeguarding our health. All right. So uh, we don't want to scare you off licorice entirely, but make your licorice decisions intelligently. Be an intelligent consumer of the wax of Belial. All right. Are, are we done talking about candy? Should we go on to something more interesting? Yeah, we should have something. We need some protein is what we need, Joe. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss the meat of the amphibioid. All right. We're back. So, Joe, have you ever eaten frog legs? Honestly, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this because I like to think of myself as an adventurous eater. But no, I don't think I've had the frog legs. Huh. Well, uh, I, I have. I have not had them recently, but I have had fried frog legs in the past. What would you think? Uh, I remember liking them, but it was kind of at, a, at an age where I liked anything that was fried up in a skillet. So mm-hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't know. I imagine you know everything fried is essentially good. It, it hits several key areas for our uh, for our taste, you know. Mm-hmm. So I imagine there's some really delicious uh, frog legs out there, but I, I have not necessarily tried them. Now, I hate to invoke the cliche, but did it taste like you know what? Like like chicken? Right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, every <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's the the cliche, but I, I have found that a lot of non non chicken, non beef, non pork meats do mm-hmm. kind of taste like chicken. I guess that's like our easiest analog for. Uh, you know, a variety of amphibians and reptiles. Like I felt like that was the same way when I had uh, what alligator once in uh, New Orleans. But, but it's a similar scenario too. Where first of all, if it's fried up, that kind of masks a lot of the flavor. And if you're primed to think it tastes like chicken, then are we just looking for those connections in the flavor profile? Right. Maybe it's not that it tastes much like chicken, but we just don't have that many other meats to compare it to. Yeah, it could be. So. This next selection it does take us to, to the world of frogs, and specifically it takes us to the African nation of uh, Namibia, not to be confused with the non-existent nation of Nambia, uh, which has been uh, in, in the news recently. Uh, you'll, find it, you'll find it on the northwest border of South Africa on the Atlantic Ocean. It's home to about 2.1 million people. There are five major ethnic groups, and the dominant religion is Christian, and, it's, uh, and uh, it owes this to its uh, colonial history. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as cuisine goes, uh, millet and maize are staple foods uh, accompanied by indigenous vegetables, beef, lamb, mutton, fish. Uh, but like many cultures around the world, they also enjoy a little frog from time to time. Cool. Uh, which I I was looking into this and I found it a, a little surprising. I didn't know much about like global food customs with frogs. Uh, a lot of people, I think, you you think of French cuisine, you may think of Cantonese uh, cuisine. These are both areas where frogs uh, are are often considered delicacies. Mm-hmm. But you encounter them in uh, just all over the world. Like people have long realized that when there are frogs around, there's a good chance you can eat their legs, their meaty legs. <laughs> I wonder to what extent the uh, a region's cultivation of frog as a food item is correlated with the extent to which frogs are an invasive pest in the area. Or not invasive, just a pest. Yeah, well, we'll see that in this example. I, I also couldn't help but wonder, do we see less frog legs uh, being consumed maybe in the U.S. based on the Muppet movie? Because we had Doc Hopper's French fried fl- frog legs restaurant, and they were, of course, uh, Trying to kill Kermit. Oh no! Yeah, or and or make him sell out his species. That's an unspeakable crime. Yeah, it is. You, you can't eat sentient frogs that sing. <laughs> Indeed, not with pipes like that. Now, in uh, Namibia, the giant African bullfrog is the amphibian delicacy of choice. Pixacephalus adspersus adspersus, aka giant pixie frog. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, also known locally as ifuma, or in the plural. Omafuma. And uh, what makes it interesting is that uh, Namibian traditions call for more of the frog to be eaten than is common in a lot of other cultures. So not just the legs. Right. It's more of a it's more in keeping with how other cultures would eat. And, you know, American culture, too, uh, would eat a fish or chicken. You know, Mm. you would essentially gut the creature and then uh, use the remnants, uh, cook that up. Hmm. So I was reading a, 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 from a book uh, for this, uh, Indigenous Knowledge of Namibia, edited by Kazila C. Chinsimbu. And it's not just uh, Namibians that uh, that enjoy this frog. The frog is widely distributed throughout southern and eastern Africa. And uh, the uh, Nisinga people of eastern Zambia, they consume it whole as well. And they call it, quote, uh, Kanyama uh, Kalei Fupa, the animal without bones. Whoa. 
Now, they do have bones, but uh, one of the uh, apparently interesting things about cooked frog meat is that it separates very easily from the bones. Oh, I yeah. see. So these uh, these frogs, the giant African bullfrog, they're plentiful in the rainy season, uh, so they're just everywhere. They're, it kind of gets into that pest area. It's like mm-hmm. there are frogs all over the place. Should we not try and eat them? It would seem to be the, the natural human inclination. Right. Uh, well, at least make a stock. Right, yeah. And the thing is that they're, they're relatively easy to catch. You can catch them by hand. Often they're caught by children. They can inflict a nasty bite if you're not careful. And I've read that this is the only example of an amphibian that can cause uh, this is how it was phrased in this uh, paper I was looking at, actual mechanical trauma. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, their bite can be a little bit nasty if you, you know, you don't know how to, 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 to catch one. I've never thought about that. Are there no other frogs that can really bite you good? Yeah, I was trying to, to think about it. I mean, I, I grew up in, in rural Tennessee and we were always catching frogs and stuff and I don't remember ever being bit by one. So The only mechanical attack I can think of I've ever witnessed a frog uh, inflicting is pooping on you, which they do quite a lot. Yeah, I guess that's just – it's more of like a chemical-based uh, attack though, right? <laughs> right. They're, yeah, generally the frog's defenses are running away or being gross. Yeah. Uh, or, or of course, having uh, actual uh, toxins. Right. Uh, but uh, – in terms of like actually causing a physically painful bite, yeah, this may be the only only example. So what they do is they catch the frogs. They you know they corral them, and when it comes time to cook them, they they clean them, they gut them, they remove the viscera as well as the tongue, which is especially frowned upon, uh, the upper jaw and the palate, uh, all of which is considered inedible. inedible. The fat is either left in or it's removed to cook separately, depending on the specific culinary tradition. Mm-hmm. Then the frogs are boiled in the same way you might boil other meats such as fish, uh, though they sometimes throw in medicinal plants. And it's thought that this decreases the, the chances of Oshi Ketaketa, which I've also seen written as Oshi uh, Ketakata. And this is what happens uh, to you. This is what can happen to your body if you eat the frogs too early. So... It was also, uh, it's also worth noting that it was a long-standing tradition not to spice the frogs or to fry them because it would make them look unappealing. Uh, they seem to prefer the, the frogs to look as much like a frog as possible, not sliced up, not spiced, and not fried. Huh. I found that interesting. Well, I think that is an interesting idea in, uh, in, in culinary traditions around the world. I mean, you see that as a major division in the way American food is served mm-hmm. today. There's sort of like the, do you want to to have the food completely denatured and appear as a product where you can't recognize the animal or the plant it came from? Or do you want to sort of like see it as close to as it would look when it was alive as possible? Yeah, I think shrimp are a fine example of this. I was thinking about this the other night because I, I was out with my family and uh, we ordered a shrimp dish mm-hmm. and the shrimp came out with their heads on and everything, which uh, – which it, it kind of has two different messages. Like if you don't want to think of the shrimp as an animal, then I could see where that could be unpleasant to gaze upon. But if you want to think of the shrimp as not only an animal but a fresh animal mm-hmm. that you are getting pretty, you know, pretty early in the, the supply chain, then the head can be a way to uh, to be sure of that, you know? You, yeah. f- you feel more like this is fresh shrimp if it still has legs and a head and its shell as opposed to just kind of like a, a pink uh, uh, comma that you have uh, – <laughs> that you've uh, you, you know bought uh, on a massive platter at a grocery store. I mean I think I've said this on the show before but I often think one of the appeals of breaded fried foods is not just the taste that it's you know oily and crunchy mm-hmm. and texturally pleasing and all that but that especially to children – it sort of masks the nature of the animal that the food comes from. And so when you have breaded fried food products, it has, it, it, it somehow tames what you're eating. Does yeah. that make sense? No, no, I agree. I've been through, been through a lot of this with my son because he, uh, he, uh, you know, pretty early on decided that he did not want to eat meats, uh, unless they were like shrimp, oysters, crabs, uh, he's essentially a, a pescatarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he has absolutely no problem eating uh, like he'll look at a live crab and talk about how much he wants to eat it you know but uh but that he has uh, you know thus thus far uh, you know refused to to eat uh, you know poultry um certainly uh cows and and pigs so mm-hmm. uh and we you know try and we try and honor that as much as possible uh 
but in this particular case, uh, I, I, I can't help but suspect, I couldn't find any sources that really spoke to this, but I, I wonder if their, their, their insistence on the frog looking like a frog has to do with avoiding the, uh, the, the sickness that can ensue if you eat it when it's too young. The Oshi Kataketa. Yes. Uh, so let, let me, let's get into Oshi Kataketa a little bit. Um, what comes of eating juvenile frogs or eating them too early in the season? The symptoms here are a lot like uh, schistosomiasis, which is caused by a parasitic flatworm that's found in freshwater snails. Gross. So, yeah, it's yeah, not pleasant. The symptoms here are acute inflammation, pain while urinating, bloody urine, and even temporary kidney failure. Yikes! So why why does the uh, why does the young frog like what does the youngness of the frog have to do with this? Uh, this seems to be a question that we don't have a firm answer for yet, or at least I was not able to find it. If anyone out there, out there has a firm answer, uh, I would love to hear it. Uh, b- basically, everyone knows that there are certain steps you can take to avoid it. You don't harvest too early uh, when the frogs are not mature enough. Specifically, you don't harvest visually immature frogs, frogs that haven't croaked yet, uh, and or frogs before the third rainfall. And there's also this added step of cooking them with medicinal ingredients, cooking them with medicinal woods uh, specifically uh, to help uh, uh, mitigate the effects. Is it known if that's actually effective? It doesn't seem to be known. Uh, yeah. Likewise, so when, when people uh, end up growing sick with uh, Oshiketa Keta, they'll seek medical uh, intervention. And it's also unsure whether this really helps or it's just something that kind of has to go away on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, there's not a lot of information out there on the particulars here, but um, th- there are a few theories as to what's uh, going on. When you look for answers uh, on this, uh, for, for starters, you'll find a number of kind of just article list articles out there mm-hmm. that just say that, OK, it's it's a poison. Uh, there's some sort of poison in the frog. Um I'm not sure if I'm as convinced about that because clearly it's 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 only a a problem with the immature frogs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it speculated that it might be a bacterial infection caused by you know, the younger frogs, uh, but I, I also keep coming back to this idea that it's some sort of a parasite. Like that seems to be the area where the symptoms line up uh, yeah. uh, in, closely. Uh, I've also read a paper that said that cases of international travelers becoming sick after consuming raw fish or quote, unusual meats such as bullfrog meat, that they would likely result in a diagnosis of uh, nathosomiasis. Uh, this is an infection caused by a nematode. Uh, and it's, I mean, it seems like a decent, uh, like, broad clinical analysis. But I looked at the symptoms. The symptoms don't really line up there. Uh, it, it doesn't, the, the, the whole, uh, you know, painful urination, bloody urine, and, uh, and temporary kidney failure. So the jury seems to remain out on what exactly causes the illness. But to me, this sounds like another one of these cases where if you eat the food prepared the right way, the way, you know, the local people who develop this cuisine know how to prepare it, you're probably going to be all right. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem – I didn't find any articles that were saying, oh, this is – this is this is really a danger. This is a public health risk, which is also why you, you're not seeing a lot of studies into it. It's not like someone's in the field saying we have to we have to help. You know, we we've got to solve this problem because no, like local culinary traditions already have the problem solved. If you uh, if you just know which frogs to eat and which ones not to eat and or how to properly prepare them. But I think I wonder about the whole again about the whole don't fry them, don't chop them up. That might be because if you were buying them from a food seller, which apparently uh, you know th- these are prepared in the home, but also sometimes they are sold. It does make sense that you might want to be able to look at the frog you're about to eat and know for certain that it was not an immature specimen. If that's going to make a difference in your health, that makes sense to me. All right, I'm going to take us back to the plant world, Robert. Okay, yeah, we've had enough meat here for the time being. Or if you want more meat, you could just say maybe it's time for the chili course. Yes. Okay, so time to look at a case study in the British Medical Journal from 1980 by uh, Norman D. Noah et al. that reviews some curious cases of food poisoning with a, with a uh, common factor between them. So the first case study mentioned in this report sounds like about as bleak an evening as you could ask for. In 1976, you got 17 schoolboys, all about 17 years old, on holiday, chaperoned by three of their teachers staying in a hostel. Okay. It gets bleaker. They come back for dinner one night, and they're supposed to have some roast chicken, but the chicken was, quote, found to be unfit to eat. <laughs> and that's all it says. 
I, I love the gaps in these case reports you could just leave up to the imagination. Was it unfit to eat because it smelled like a dumpster? Was it unfit to eat because it was cooked to leather? Yeah, how how far into the meal uh, did they get before this was uh, the pronouncement? Right. So anyway, chicken's unfit to eat. So instead, they threw together an alternative supper made from the following ingredients. They had a salad. They had hard-boiled eggs, cooked potatoes, and raw red kidney beans that had been soaking in a saucepan since the night before. Huh. Okay. Sounds pretty good, huh? <laughs> Well, I'm 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 instantly suspicious of that last uh, dish. I'm curious, Robert. When you make beans in your house, I assume you make beans. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We we do uh, we do bean dishes from time to time. Yeah. Do you generally uh, do you just like go to a can, open a can, or do you soak them from dried and and cook them from there? Oh, uh, we, we've done both. I guess we tend to do. We tend to do the can thing more often, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I, like in the past, people have gifted us like some really nice, uh, what is it, Rancho Gordo beans oh, or yeah. the dried beans, and you have to go through the whole rigmarole of soaking them and so forth. Yeah, I I never did dried beans for a long time. Always, whenever I was making beans, just used canned beans. Mm-hmm. But it, hey, cooks out there at home, if you're the same way, if you if you haven't tried dried beans, I think they're way better. Uh, I I would agree, and I would say that. It's always a – you can tell a lot by uh, particularly like a, a Mexican restaurant, I feel, uh-huh. uh, when you taste their their beans, just like the, the, the black beans or the refried beans. Like you can you can taste the difference. Uh, yeah. If they're giving this much attention to the bean dish, then it probably bodes well for the rest of the menu. Yeah, and, and good beans are good stuff. I think yeah. they often get thought of as like part of – you know, something to sort of fill part of the plate. Right, but, yeah. But good beans are really good. And if you, if you give them the right kind of care, you soak them, you cook them long enough, and they become nice and tender, oh, it, you know, cooking from dried beans is the way to go. But back to the case study. So they did not follow these instructions. <laughs> they did go from dried beans, but they didn't cook them. They just used these soaked, uncooked beans. The case study says these soaked, uncooked beans were, quote, not popular – only nine of the 17 boys ate a significant quantity of them. And about an hour to an hour and a half after eating interstage left, the evil gods of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Oh. Nine of the boys got sick. Two had to be admitted to the hospital, and one had to be given an IV infusion while in the hospital. Ooh. Fortunately, none of them died. They all recovered. And the doctors studying what caused the outbreak were unable to find evidence of microbial pathogens like E. coli or salmonella that you'd normally see if that was the cause. Uh, and they weren't able to find evidence of any chemical contaminants to explain what made the boys sick. And after you combine this case with other observations, it starts to become clear that something about undercooked kidney beans itself was the problem because other patients had been documented with similar histories. Eating raw, soaked, or lightly cooked red kidney beans has this history of bringing forth the nausea, the vomiting, the copious diarrhea. So what's going on there? Well, the kidney bean is a variety of the common bean, a Phaseolus vulgaris. It's the same species as pinto beans, navy beans, and so forth. It's just a, a different strain produced by the genetic engineering of agriculture. Okay. Well, the uncooked beans, the authors found, include toxins such as, quote, hemagglutinins, trypsin inhibitors, a goiterogen, and cyanogenic glycosides. And they write, quote, that the hemagglutinins were the cause of the vomiting and the diarrhea appears likely. So hemagglutinin is a lectin. A lectin is a type of protein that binds to sugar molecules, and you'll find them in beans. What effect does it have on the body? Well, uh, it's it's sort of there in the name, right? Hemagglutinin. It causes red blood cells, the hematic cells, to agglutinate, uh, to clump together. And it, so it clumps to the red blood cells. Kind of gross. Uh, other substances also have hemagglutinin properties. Uh, for example, one reason the influenza virus can be so effective is that it has these proteins that work as hemagglutinins in the blood. And the authors of the study note that in cases when raw red and white kidney beans have been fed to rats as 80% of their diet by mass, the rats tended to die within three days. Oh, wow. But when the hemagglutinins from red kidney beans were isolated and fed to the rats, the rats also lost weight and died. So even if you hmm. just took the hemagglutinins out and gave that to the rats, it seemed to have the same effect. Okay. 
Uh, the authors also note that the extreme toxin ricin, which is found in castor beans, we've uh, talked yes. about before, that that is also a hemagglutinin. Uh, so the active toxins in raw red kidney beans appear to be destroyed pretty easily by sufficient heat heating. Just boil the beans, which would seem you know rather straightforward. It's like act, cook your beans. Yeah, yeah. And other studies have confirmed the role of raw or undercooked kidney beans in food poisoning outbreaks. Um, the bottom line is if you boil your beans for a while, they'll be fine. Obviously, you don't want to eat them raw, but here's actually the real danger, the thing that might get you if you're not some kind of weird person who wants to eat raw red kidney beans. Low temperature cooking ah. could be a danger. So, if, for example, you put your beans in the slow cooker and you put it on the low setting and you give them a couple hours – it's possible that they will never reach the internal temperature required to destroy the toxic lectins that could make you sick. So cook them thoroughly, cook them to the boiling point, high temperature. And uh, and of course, if you're using canned beans, those are already boiled, so they'll be fine. But if you want to treat yourself to the delights of, of well-cooked beans from the dried state, boil them well. With, with increased taste comes increased responsibility, I right. would say. Yeah, I was actually invited to, uh, you know, an amateur, uh, chili cook-off recently, and now I'm, now I'm hesitating. But, but at the same time, I'm like, most of the people participating, they're probably gonna use canned beans, right? Or if they're gonna use dry beans, then they're, they're gonna know what's up. They're gonna know how to, uh, uh, approach the dish. Well, I mean, I'd say surely they'll, they'll boil them. That, yeah. I, I would be shocked if somebody <laughs> makes a chili and like adds adds soaked beans right before serving it without boiling them or something. That would be a really They're odd just so choice. last minute, you know. They just they that's they didn't have time to actually cook it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we we've had uh, we've had three dishes so far. We've had our licorice. We've uh, we've had our bullfrog. We've had our beans. Nobody has died yet, or at least we haven't specifically referenced a study that included a fatality. No, I feel like uh, a lot of the foods that will kill you we already knocked out in previous Dangerous yeah. Foods episodes. I mean, most of the time if something will kill you reliably enough for people to write about it, it's not a common food. Right. Yeah, and there's not like a a, a very common and accepted way to avoid uh, uh, that sort of uh, that sort of death. So mainly, I guess we're talking about stuff that'll make you sick. But hey, what about stuff that'll make you see into the future? Ooh, that sounds good. Let's take one more commercial break, and when we come back, uh, we will have some hallucinogenic fish. All right, we're back. Robert, do you want to talk about fish madness? <laughs> sure. It's, it sounds delightful. I want to look at a couple of case studies from a 2006 paper in the journal Clinical Toxicology by Luc de Hero and Philippe Pommier. And here are the cases. So in April 1994, a healthy 40-year-old man was on vacation in the French Riviera in Cannes. And one night after eating a dinner of delicious baked sea bream – actually, I can't comment on how delicious it was. I assume it was delicious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, considering where he's eating it, right? It must be a very classy dish. Sure, yeah. So – Baked sea bream. He starts to feel weak and then nauseated and he starts to vomit during the night. And the next day he tries to drive himself home, uh, uh, you know, get, getting back home from the vacation. Mm -hmm. But he encountered a problem on the way home. His car was surrounded by, quote, giant arthropods. Oh, my. So this is not just mild uh, hallucination here where everything's a little wavy. Like he is no. seeing giant insects. No, he's not seeing like uh, tracers and, you know, mm -hmm. like light auras around things. No, he's seeing giant arthropods surrounding his vehicle. Oh, wow. Full naked lunch. Okay. And so, of course, these giant arthropods were preventing him from driving home. And he went on to experience terrifying hallucinations involving, quote, aggressive and screaming animals. Oh. <laughs> Agitated and confused, he somehow arrived at a hospital emergency room. And once there, though he was in this state of stress and excitation, he really didn't show any physical abnormalities. They couldn't find anything wrong with his body other than the fact that he was freaking out and, and stressed out and distressed. So the hospital kept him for a couple of days, and after about 36 hours, his hallucinations had disappeared. Huh. Another case, March 2002, and a totally healthy, otherwise 90-year-old man bought some sea bream from a local fisherman at a place called Saint-Tropez, again in the French Riviera. He took it home. He cleaned it. He prepared it, and he ate it. About two hours after his meal, he started hearing strange noises. He heard humans screaming all around him, and he heard the sound of shrieking birds. 
and he experienced these hallucinations and had terrible nightmares for about two or three days, and then it all went away. Now, initially, he didn't report the symptoms because he was afraid it was the onset of a permanent mental illness. And side note, if if you're experiencing unexpected hallucinations, whatever you think the cause might be, it is better to tell somebody and try to get help. Yeah, don't just say, ah, I guess I had some weird fish. Right. Because that's that's exactly what Ebenezer Scrooge would do. Right. Just blame it on the potato. You could be a bit of cheese, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, after all this was over, he remembered hearing from someone at the fish market that the sea bream, the fish he had eaten, had been known to cause hallucinations in the past. And on that basis, he called poison control in Marseille. So in both cases, the fish the men had eaten was this species of sea bream called Sarpa Salpa, also known as the Salema Porgy or the gold line. And I think this is because it has these little yellow gold stripes, mm-hmm. nothing to do with that company that hawks gold on TV. Okay. The authors of this paper note that these are not the only cases of hallucinogenic fish poisoning known. Uh, And the, by the way, the scientific term for hallucinogenic fish poisoning, I hope I do this right, is ichthyoalginotoxism. Huh, okay. And uh, it's widespread throughout tropical regions of the Indian and Pacific Ocean, sometimes in the Mediterranean. Widespread, but not necessarily common. So you see it all over the place, but it does appear to be rare. It's not something like if you go to the tropics, you can just expect to get fish madness. Um, other fish implicated in similar hallucinogenic poisonings would include things like the sea chub, the common mullet, the convict surgeon fish, and the coral grouper. The convict surgeon fish does sound a little suspect. Yeah, it is pretty good. They've got a whole list. There are other ones, too, mentioned in the paper. Those were, I thought, the best names. <laughs> Uh, so here are the common symptoms you get with ichthyoalginotoxism. Within the first few minutes to two hours after eating the fish, patients usually report symptoms similar to drunkenness, like they've got a loss of balance and coordination and, quote, generalized malaise, discomfort, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes a sore throat, sometimes heartburn can occur at this phase. And then comes the second phase. This is usually a couple of hours after eating the fish. You get the central nervous system effects, and these would include delirium. Visual and auditory hallucinations usually reported as frightening. And weirdly enough, the authors note this. They very often seem to involve animals. That's weird that there would be like specific content common to the hallucinations. Yeah, it's almost like it's like a a, a ghost that's been summoned to punish the carnivore. Yeah. Uh, Terrifying nightmares, depression, the feeling that you're about to die, quote, with reactive tachycardia and hyperventilation. So feelings that the death is coming make people have elevated heart rhythms and, and hyperventilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, quote, transient behavioral disturbances. Uh, this sounds just kind of like odd, dangerous and erratic behavior. And this is one of the things you can treat. You can treat this with drugs like benzodiazepine or, uh, or neuroleptics in order to prevent the patient from hurting themselves or others. Uh, but I don't know, this conjures into mind these, a bizarre scenario where it's like somebody's got the fish madness and it's like, just leave him be, son. He's got the fish madness. It's got to run its course. <laughs> we just tie him down and make sure he doesn't, doesn't hurt himself. Uh, but anyway, sometimes, not always, there is gastrointestinal distress, nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea. And at the time of this paper, there was no known antidote. I looked for for recent research looking for an antidote, and I was unable to find one. So it looks like something that cannot be cured. You can just treat the symptoms and wait for it to go away on Mm -hmm. its own. Now, I mentioned that despite being widespread, the cases of poisoning of this kind are rare. Hallucinogenic fish poisoning occurs in only a fraction of the the cases of consuming these fish. And toxicity seems to vary depending on a bunch of factors, like when the fish was caught, though there are some conflicting claims about, like, which season it is most dangerous, and especially how it's prepared. According to a popular anecdote, the risk of poisoning goes way up if you don't immediately gut the fish after capture – or if you cook and serve the head with the rest of the body. Ah, okay. So we see similar uh, uh, practices uh, as with the, with the bullfrog, where like, and it was with a, with a, as with a lot of uh, animals that we eat, there are things you just need to get rid of immediately in order to make it uh, edible. Yeah. 
Now, unlike the red kidney beans, cooking does not seem to help. Uh, bad fish strips have been reported not just when the fish is eaten raw, but when it's been boiled, steamed, fried. This is one huh. where the denaturing uh, process of breading and frying will not necessarily save you. Now, the good news is it generally does not appear to be fatal, but obviously could be dangerous if a dosed person can't get medical attention or you're trying to drive your car through a herd of giant arthropods. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, you have to wonder – if you can trip on fish heads, is anybody doing it on purpose? Oh, I would assume so. Uh, the answer – so I, I'm not sure about this. The authors of this 2006 paper report that the answer is yes, that people have been reported to do it recreationally. Um, they say that Arabic-speaking populations apparently call this fish the fish that makes dreams. Huh. Uh, they claim that it has been used recreationally as far back as the Roman Empire, though I could not find corroborating evidence of this. All references to this fact seem to just point back to the claim in this paper. Well, and then also I would wonder if it, if it has been used th- that long, I mean, recreationally or you could say shamanistically, right? Because yeah. uh, that seems to be the pattern we take. Yeah, there are probably people that – that turn to one another and say, hey, eat this fish, see what happens. But it also seems likely that someone would say, hey, uh, something magical happens when you eat this fish. Let's talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I, I don't doubt at all that it's possible this is the case, but I do – I am kind of suspicious just because I, I can't find independent verification of evidence of this. So uh, I, I wonder. I, I'm not sure about that fact. Um, uh, but they also claim that it's been used recreationally more recently in Polynesia and that another hallucinogenic fish, the sir mullet or Moloidodictus samoensis, is traditionally known among some of the peoples of the Hawaiian Islands as, quote, the chief of ghosts. Hmm. Now, here's the question. What causes the poisoning? It's hard to know for sure. Uh, the authors note that one complicating factor is that some cases of ichthyoelyinotoxism seem to be confused with a totally different kind of fish poisoning called ciguatera. And this is a condition that happens when you eat some tropical reef fish that have been contaminated with a species of microalgae, a uh, dinoflagellate called Gambier discus toxicus. Hmm. And people with ciguatera experience nausea, vomiting, and neurologic disturbances, so sounds kind of similar, but not disturbances to the central nervous system as with the hallucinogenic fish and not the brain so much as the peripheral nervous system, for example, tingling of the fingers and toes or illogical touch sensations. Like people say that the feelings of hot and cold are reversed for them. Oh, wow. Um, so Sigaterra could be viewed as more serious than ichthyoalianotoxism since some patients actually die from Sigaterra. Uh, and if they survive, symptoms can last for months or even years. But one similarity between hallucinogenic fish poisoning and Sigaterra is that scientists have speculated that the toxins that cause the hallucinations may also come from algae consumed by the fish, which contaminates the fish's meat with these psychoactive compounds. Uh, just to mention one study by uh, Khaled Belasued et al. from 2012, published in uh, In Vitro Cellular and Developmental Biology, they did some research on prepared extracts from Sarpa Salpa, the sea bream, and they, they took extracts from the liver, the brain, and the muscle. And what they found was that the liver extract in particular was cytotoxic, meaning toxic to cells, to human cells. And the source of this was they believed that in their research they showed that the toxic effects were traceable to elements in the fish's diet, specifically, quote, toxic dinoflagellates, which live in epiphyte on Posidinia oceanica leaves. Now, epiphyte means a plant that grows on another plant, right? So the uh, Posidinia oceanica is a type of seagrass that lives in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So the fish graze on the seagrass. And the seagrass is a host for this little organism, which produces the toxins. The toxins accumulate in the liver of the fish, and the liver can poison a human who eats it. All right. I have uh, one final selection here. It is uh, it is another meat. It's a rather unique meat, and I will warn everyone that uh, that, that people will die on this one, but, but probably not that many people. So the, the dish in question is san nakji, which is a Korean delicacy. Uh, and the chef prepares it by slicing the tentacles off of a small live octopus. A live octopus. Live octopus, yes. And then these tentacles are, are seasoned. They're tossed in sesame oil and served with various sauces, you know, like a chili sauce or something. And then the dish is brought to the table. 
uh, while it's while everything's still moving and writhing around. It's a Lovecraftian wow. feast. It's uh, it's chewy, uh, but it's also crawly as the tentacles continue to move around on the plate with their little suction cups. Uh, so it has, to say the least, it has a unique texture. Uh, invite, and it invites extreme opinions. Well, wait, th- this makes me think, is this a thing to be, uh, to be chewed? Like, yes. like, or a thing to just be sort of shot like an oyster, maybe? Do not shoot it like an oyster, yeah. is the, is the take on that I, that I got from, from reading about it. Uh, yeah, you're gonna want to chew this up. Now, uh, I mentioned the extreme opinions. This is one of those dishes where if you're hearing this, you might be saying, yeah, I'll give that a shot. That sounds like it's like sushi that moves. Other people might say, well, that 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 sounds absolutely disgusting. And it does seem to – they do seem to target uh, – uh, restaurants do seem to target tourists for this very reason, like oh. people who want something exciting and, um, and exotic, right? Yeah. It's something I imagine a lot of people take pictures of themselves eating. Right. And one of the reasons is because his reputation. Yeah. Uh, it's said that if you uh, – that, that it is a dish that can potentially choke you. Uh, and, and there is some reason reasoning behind this. Uh, the most important thing is that if you do have it – have this dish, you need to chew it up. Uh, because the idea here is that if you don't chew it up enough, the suction cups on the tentacles will remain intact enough to stick to the roof of your mouth or the inside of your throat, potentially choking you. Wow. So I'm reminded of, you know, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. You know, right. You've captured me, you've killed me, you've served me, but maybe I get this one last chance to choke you. I mentioned the, the sesame oil. I've also read that the sesame oil helps prevent the suckers from attaching as you eat it. But again, you're going to want to chew this up. Writer Matt Gross uh, discussed the dish in his 2008 New York Times article, A Quest into the uh, Gustatory Heart of Soul, and he shared the following. The most surprising thing about uh, Sanakchi, it tasted good, clean and meaty, and once I'd gotten over the discombobulation that comes from eating something that most definitely does not want to be eaten, I was chopsticking tentacles into my mouth as if they were octopopcorn. Octopopcorn. Yeah. And uh, oh, interestingly enough, I found an, a news article from 2012 in which a man was accused of murdering his girlfriend, and he claimed that he didn't kill her, but she simply choked to death uh, on an order of Sanachi in their hotel room. So take that for what it's worth. I couldn't find any uh, coverage that followed up on that to see who was actually telling the truth there. But again, this is a dish that elects strong opinions. Uh, now, I myself, I've chosen to abstain from eating octopus, so the idea isn't super appealing to me. But I do love sushi and Korean food, so I can imagine how one might enjoy it. Now, octopi are, of course, amazing organisms, and they boast a number of different defenses against predators. They have camouflage, ink, threatening displays, high-speed jet propulsion, escape, and venom. But it would seem that in some cases, uh, you know, their, their final defense is their chokeability. Now, I wonder, would that be an actual adaptation? I guess it possibly could be, like... In the same way that a uh, an animal could have toxins that would be poisonous, basically to discourage other animals from eating it, yeah, you could have some kind of mechanical action of your flesh that punishes an animal that eats you and discourages predation. Well, yeah, I mean there are I've, there are adaptations that discourage uh, you know being eaten. Obviously, uh, I, I guess it, it's hard to really nail down the octopus on this, right? Because yeah. it has so many other robust uh, defensive mechanisms. Uh, and but we do have examples that, that have come to light where. Uh, say a dolphin has attempted to eat an octopus and it has choked on it. Mm. But of course, that can be said of a lot of different foods. I mean, a lot of human foods are, you know, you, you, if it goes down wrong, you can choke. And if you choke, you can die. Uh, however, there is one example of an animal that does seem to have a, a, a choking uh, the predator uh, adaptation. And that is, of course, the hagfish. Which, uh, if you've ever seen footage of these, these things are, are amazing. This kind of faceless, jawless, um, slugfish creature. Uh-huh. And uh, when threatened, they squeeze out this gill-choking slime, just this thick, viscous, uh, lube-like material. And, uh, and, and this appears to be one of its adaptations is that if something tries to eat it, they're just going to get a mouthful and perhaps gills full of slime that could choke them out. Defend yourself by being disgusting. Yeah, the hagfish has it has it down to a fine science. Now, speaking of choking, in previous episodes we've discussed, you know, a lot of times how Western culture is given to panic about poisoning and danger from unfamiliar foods from other cuisines. Mm-hmm. 
but that when you look up the numbers, actually the most harmful food poisoning outbreaks in the United States tend to come from things that are considered to be very ordinary American products, not exotic foods. Uh, one of the big ones is lettuce and other leafy yeah. greens in a bag, uh, but also meats, cheeses, prepared packaged foods like peanut butter. And it turns out the same principle holds true, not just for food poisoning by pathogens and contaminants, but for choking risk. Yeah. A study in 2013 reviewed the foods that most children choked on between 2001 and 2009. And the primary culprit was, of course, not octopus, uh, not any kind of uh, uh, ethnic cuisine from anywhere in the world. It was hard candy. Yeah, that would make sense because, you know, there are other highly chokeable foods uh, such as, say, grapes, where with young kids, you're always being reminded, well, make sure you slice those grapes in half, you know, Uh you can do that with grapes. Uh, hard candy is that's a taller order. Yeah. So in this period from 2001 to 2009, more than 16,000 children showed up in ERs choking on hard candy. Oh. That means that's about 15 percent of all child emergency room visits due to choking were caused by hard candy. Hmm. So other than the fact that they're disgusting, this is another good reason nobody should ever buy Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> yeah, pick up the, uh, the the nice chewable black Twizzlers instead. They're far <laughs> better for you, right? I don't even – those might not even be made with the real licorice extract. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Well, that. but you had that, that, that one study where they specifically said – But that was several years back. Yeah, it's true. So the recipe may have changed. Yeah. Huh. Don't know. More research is required. Uh, don't Don't – don't take our word for it on the, the actual licorice content of your candy. Well, Robert, I hope you feel satisfied by this feast today. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this was a dangerous feast. Uh, we, ma- we made it through. We learned a little bit about other cultures and uh, other uh, culinary traditions. And, uh, yeah, and hopefully we learned a little bit about ourselves, you know, by, by focusing in on, uh, you know, a seemingly exotic food that can choke you, we're forced to realize, oh, yeah, most of our food can choke us. Right. It doesn't have to be writhing and uh, around and have suction cups on it to pose a potential danger. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, we'd love to hear from anyone out there who has tried these various dishes. Have you had the African bullfrog? Have uh, have you had uh, uh, writhing uh, tentacles in a uh, in, in a, a soul restaurant? Have you had hallucinogenic fish poisoning? Yeah, I guess we'll probably hear from a lot of people if we ask if you've had red kidney beans. But yes, uh, uh, but but please out there cook those beans. Yes, have you had these things, and then have you suffered any of the uh, the symptoms that we've discussed? And hey, we it's open season for comments on black licorice. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you have weird feelings about it? Let us know. Yeah, it's, it's a polarizing snack in many respects. Hey, get in touch with us uh, all the normal ways. Head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes and videos and blog posts. Links out to our various social media accounts as well, such as Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. And on Facebook, be sure to check out our discussion module. That's a group where you can, you can join up and chat with other listeners. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.